Our sermon text this morning comes from Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14. You can find it on the yellow insert. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of God. You know, listening to those words from Luke chapter 4, it's easy to see that we people become disenfranchised with the normal. We get bored with the usual. I remember um, visiting my Uncle Ken and my cousins, my aunt out in Vermont. My Uncle Ken is a logger, and uh, I remember that uh, one time uh, it, he, he, he had land, and out on his land he, he shot clay pigeons. And uh, I enjoyed uh, going out with the cousins, and he taught us how to hold the, the gun, and then he would, he would have the launcher, and the launcher would shoot that clay pigeon into the air, and, and we could see how many that we could get. I was maybe 13 or 14 years old, and I was pretty proud of myself. I got about, like, maybe five out of 25. I clipped a little bit. You know, I was, I was pretty happy with that. Um, and then one evening, he came back because he was a professional sports shooter at the local club or semi-professional, and he had a disappointed look on his face. And we asked him, you know, how did you do? And he said, uh, 49 out of 50. And I thought to myself, really? Like, he says, yeah, I didn't make the finals this time. Okay. I thought that's pretty impressive. Become disenfranchised with uh, amazing when it becomes normal. And maybe that's true if you, if, for you if you're maybe a bowler. I know that we have some really good bowlers here. I'm really happy with like a 150, and yet some of you bowlers out there, I know that a 150 you won't even blink at, and you won't even be happy until you get about 200. I remember back in college, my cousin's husband brought out this very new invention and he held it out for everybody, and we all went, ooh, ah, it was the first 
iPhone in about 2007, 2008, and I was amazed at the touchscreen and at the, at the browser and at the camera on it and at these awesome apps that you could, like, you could turn the app on and it was like a light, like a, a candle that you could go like this and the candle would go back and forth and there was a pretend beer that you could kind of go like this and the motion sensors would pretend like it was pouring into your mouth. It was pretty amazing. Now today, you look at that same phone and you look at those apps and you're kind of like, that's silly. We grow bored with the usual now that we have these amazing devices that we can work from, that we can call for a ride from, that we can order pizza from. You know, I think that you and I often get into that mindset of the people in the town of Nazareth that became bored with the extraordinary because they knew Jesus growing up. He was the hometown boy. And when he came back to them, he had an extraordinary message. A message that went beyond their wildest dreams, and yet they couldn't get past the ordinary. The ordinary message that he came in. The ordinary appearance that he was. And they drove their Savior and their Lord to the edge of a cliff to throw him off because their faith was stunted, because they wanted that shock factor. My prayer for us today is that the Holy Spirit take us through this text too, and that we don't fall into the same trap as those people from Nazareth. That we don't become so enamored with the things and the circumstances and the way that things are working out in our life. And the prayer that God will make us healthier or wealthier or, or, or better in this life. And we lose out on that promise that Jesus speaks about when he speaks in the synagogue. An extraordinary message. Because if we do that, if we lose out on that extraordinary message in the simple way that it's presented in God's word, we risk that same thing to push Jesus to the edge of our life and even off of a cliff. And that, my friends, would be the most dangerous thing in our life to lose. And so listen to this. This morning, hear Jesus' shocking sermon. It is shocking. Number one, he has some amazing insights. Amazing insights that would surprise the people of his hometown and in fact, some of them, when they heard these insights, liked to hear what they were hearing. And then we're going to look even farther and see next, after the amazing insights, his, his amazing application for our life. Okay? So first of all, his amazing insights. He returns to his hometown, Nazareth. Um, this is the town that he grew up in. Um, of course, he was born in Bethlehem, but his father worked in Nazareth as a carpenter, and he was known as the carpenter's son. Pretty common upbringing for a boy back then. And that's, this is how the people knew him, um, Mary and Joseph's son. Well, one day he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom, it says. And so you notice that Jesus makes a custom. He makes a habit around the Word of God. And we know that all the way back to his childhood, he was in the temple during Passover, right? During the time when his parents had lost him. And he was even there learning about God's Word, digesting it at about the age of 30 in Hebrew culture or in Jewish culture. That's about the time that you as a young man were able to stand up publicly in a public space and to read the Word of God. And so Jesus, we know in his early ministry now, is at least 30 years old. He's invited to the synagogue or he goes to the synagogue. He's either invited or he stands up at a proper time and accepted by one of the elders in the synagogue to come forward and read. And he comes up to read from one of the prophets. Now, in the synagogue lit uh, liturgies, there's two readings. There's the law, there's the parashah reading, and then after that comes the prophets, the haptarah reading. And Jesus is reading the second one. He's reading the haptarah, so he's not the first to speak. He stands up and he comes forward. And one of the attendants in the synagogue, they didn't have Bibles like this today, 
goes over to the wall, um, and he pulls out one of the scrolls from the, the haptera, and he brings it over to Jesus. And whether it's predetermined what he's going to read or whether Jesus unrolls it and he finds the place, he finds a place in Isaiah 61, and he speaks that to the whole assembly. And this is what that sounds like. He read to them, The Spirit of the, Lord, of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stops there, and he ends it just like that. Now, that's the first thing that we notice is that that's a pretty short reading for the synagogue back then. Usually the readings would go on a lot longer than this, but he stops it right there, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. He sits down because they allowed their preachers to sit back then, because they allowed their preachers to talk for like hours back then. (laughs) And he says this. He says, this scripture today is fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture today is fulfilled in your hearing. What did he mean when he said that? Well, look at Isaiah again. Look at what Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah was talking about the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's talking about a prophecy about this me that was coming in the future. About, if you know the book of Isaiah, a servant who was coming, but he was also a kingly servant who was coming to serve and to give his life, we know, in other parts of Isaiah. And the Spirit of the Lord is on me and, and he says, that means that God has chosen me. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. God has chosen me. He's anointed me. That means that Jesus' identity is a lot greater than they thought. Because who did they think Jesus was, right? Who did they know he was from their observation? They knew he was Joseph, the carpenter's son, who grew up as a boy and who had a fairly normal life. He hung out at church an awful lot. But he was a normal boy, and now he comes out and he says, my identity is far greater than you think, because God has chosen me. He says, I'm not just the carpenter's son, I'm not just Mary's boy, but I am the, I am the main event of the Bible, <laughs> of the scriptures. That's it. Jesus' identity is far greater than you and I could think. In the world today, you might hear people say, Jesus is a, well, he's a historical figure, and maybe he's a good teacher, Jesus is a good example or a moral leader, a moral character that tells us how to live a better life. But do you know what the answer is? He's a lot more than that. Yes, he's a good moral example. Yes, he's a good teacher. But he's so much more than that. He's the fulfillment, he's saying, of all of these scriptures that, and, and this is what we're going to get to next, is he's, his identity is greater than you think because he's the Messiah, the chosen one of God, anointed like a king would be anointed or chosen and, uh, and oil would be poured over him. He, he says, God has poured the oil over me, and I'm the one who's chosen. I'm the one who's anointed. But my identity is greater than you think. He's not just a friend or a moral example. He's king. He's God. He's the Messiah come into this world. And if that doesn't shock those childhood friends that were in the crowd that day, I don't know what would. I often say, like, if my older brother Jeremy... If he came out one day at 30 years old and said he was the Messiah, I think I would have some reservations too. I would be a little shocked too. The second thing is, when you look at this, what is he saying? He's saying his identity is greater than you ever imagined and his work is better than you ever imagined. Because, he says, this is what it means that I'm anointed. 
This is what it means that this age of the kingdom of God is coming in through me and my work to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, to give sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year. In other words, the moment, the era of the Lord's favor. And you ask yourself, well, when did Jesus do this? When did he set the, um, the oppressed free? When did he free the prisoners and open the eyes of the blind? Well, to this point, uh, Jesus has been doing miracles, and um, the people soon would be asking for a miracle here in his hometown. But he set the oppressed free, and he proclaimed freedom to the poor, like that woman who was brought before him by a council, a jury, and a judge who were carrying heavy stones in their hands, and they were about to pummel them at her because she had committed adultery, which was the correct punishment for adultery back then in their culture. And she was captivated by the guilt of her sin and the feeling of, of shame in that culture. And Jesus, when they came to him and asked him what they should do with her, do you know what he said? He said, whosoever one of you is without sin, you be the first one to cast the stone. And within moments, that captive of sin was set free. The stones dropped, they walked away, go and sin no more. Do you see in this, in this prophecy from Isaiah that the proclamation, in fact, there's, there's two words that Isaiah uses and Jesus uses in the New Testament Greek um, translation of it, kairutsai and those are two words. The first one means to make an official announcement. And the second one is to proclaim good news. Jesus' proclamation, his words that come out of the mouth, you're forgiven, is his power. That's what Isaiah is saying is that when the kingdom of God comes and it comes in this anointed of God, that the power of the anointed is going to come in the proclamation that he makes. It's not just in the miracles. And so when does he set the oppressed free? When does he give sight to the blind? He gives sight to the blind when he's walking with his disciples and they come upon a man who is born blind and his disciples say to him, Jesus, whose fault is it? Is it his fault or is it his parents' fault that this man is born blind? And what does Jesus say? Neither. He says, this happened so that the work of God may be revealed. And within moments, he revealed the work of God with the power of his word that healed the eyes of a blind man. Do you see how his proclamation and his power go hand in hand? In fact, you would, might say that his power supplemented his proclamation, which was the engine, the driver behind, behind the healing. So when did Jesus give sight to the blind? He did it to that blind man. When did he set the oppressed free? He set the oppressed free when he sat around a, a, a well with a woman who had never known a man, I mean really known a real man. And he said to her, I am the water of life. Whoever drinks from me will never go thirsty. Forgiven. Proclamation. He had the power of proclamation and the power of healing in the very gospel that he preached from God, the forgiveness of sins, when he set captives free from their religious shackles of the day, like Nicodemus, who came to Jesus and said, what, you know, what, what, what are you all about? I know my religious background. I know that, that, that you, you, you have to do things. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how you get into the kingdom of God. You get into the kingdom of God by being born again. He set captives free through the proclamation of his word. When little children were being held back by his disciples, Jesus says, no, no, no. 
Let them come to me, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He sets the oppressed free, and he gives life to and hope to the people who are on the margins, the people who are confronted by their sin and they know it, the people who are crushed by guilt, and he sets them free. Now, to this point in the sermon, the shocking sermon, he's giving incredible insight into the work of the Messiah, and he's saying, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Whether people knew that they were talking, he was talking directly about himself, or whether they knew he was talking about the era that was ushering in, some people liked what they were hearing. And in fact, they said, it says that they were astonished at his teaching, and they clamored over it, and they loved what they were hearing. But Jesus has a second part to his sermon that was not so well received. Um, verse 23 says, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum and the surrounding areas were the areas where Jesus was performing these miracles, where he was showing his power and proclaiming the kingdom of God. But now notice what Jesus is doing here. Even before the people are able to respond to him, he's looking into their hearts and he's seeing there's a real problem. And this is a real problem for you and me too. The real problem is they were relying on the circumstances They were relying on, God, can you make me healthier? God, can you make me richer? God, can you give me a better life right now? Because we've heard that you've done this in other places, and that person over there is richer, and that person over there is healthier. So God, if you really love me, do you see this, circumstances that they're putting on Jesus? Make my life better right now. And Jesus says, no, that's the cancer right there, and that right here. You're going to tell me that... I'm coming back to the hometown, and I'm doing these things out there, and I'm telling you I'm ushering in this era of healing, of hope for the the sick, of, of, of redemption for the sinner, and you're asking for something too small. And he says, this happened not just today, but this happened in our history, folks. This happened back in the time of Elijah. It happened back in the time of Elisha, the prophets, hundreds of years before when God's people had seen the signs, and they had heard of the grace, and yet they rejected God. They rejected the gospel. And so Jesus brings up two examples. He says, in the days when the sky was shut and there was a famine, Elijah, he didn't go back to the people to do the miracle. He didn't go back to the Jewish people, his hometown, his home people, because they had rejected him. What did he do? He went to a region far, far away in Sidon. He found a widow in Zarephath, a Gentile, who was about to die, and she was gathering her last meal for her and her son. And then she said, and then I'm going to die. And he provided flour and oil for her, for her to survive miraculously. Because she is the outcast. She's the one that realizes that, that it's, it's in the weak things, it's in the poor things that God comes and he works his power. And then he says in Elijah's time, he didn't heal all those lepers that were in Israel at the time. He went and actually a Gentile came to him, Naaman the Syrian, and he was healed. Not all of the people that had heard the message and rejected it. Jesus' power and his proclamation go together. And if you and I are going to rely simply on the power of God in our life and lose the proclamation, we are going to get as disenfranchised with the normal. We're going to actually start to even push God to the fringes of our life because, well, God, I want a more fulfilling marriage. And if you don't give me a more fulfilling marriage in my life, God, I don't know if you really love me. (laughs) 
Well, guess what? You've messed up your marriage quite a bit, (laughs) too. You're pushing God and you're putting things on God that he simply hasn't promised, and you could push him to the edge, and you could push him out of your life. God, I want to become vertical in my career, and it's not happening as fast as I want it to. God, do you really love me enough that I could become, um, uh, you know, a manager, and then maybe, uh, you know, a regional manager, or whatever it is that I aspire to, and I want that, I want that income, and and God, why haven't you given that to me? Do you really love me? You see where the questioning of God's love comes in if you rely only on his power, not his proclamation? You push him to the edge. You push him to the fringe. The people here, they became irate quickly in this sermon because he spoke about the proclamation of God and he spoke about the cancer in their heart that was going after one thing and one thing only, and that was a sign. That was a miracle, not the promise. And so... They heard about these Gentiles getting the love of God, and that may have infuriated this group even more, and they began to heckle him. And the heckling turned into shouting, and the shouting turned into actually physically moving him out of the pulpit and out of the synagogue and to the edge of the town to a hill where the mob was about to throw him off the edge of the cliff, and then they got what they asked for. I love this part about this story. They got exactly what they asked for because a mob... His friends and his family from his hometown could not push that boy off the cliff. And he walked right through them. And he gave them a very sign that they asked for. He walked away untouched. What does this mean for you? What's the application for you and me? The application is don't get caught up with the God that is so small that all he does is give you health, wealth, and success. Because you're going to miss out on the beauty of what he really did. Remember earlier I said he cut that reading short? It seemed like that was a pretty short reading for a synagogue reading. He ended it with this, and maybe this is why he ended it purposefully. He said, and say the words on the screen with me, to proclaim, ready? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End. That's where he stopped the quote from Isaiah 61, verse 2. Do you know the rest of that verse? It says this, And the day of vengeance of our God. But he didn't say that. And I know Jesus chooses his words carefully. And he chooses his text carefully. He ended to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, I'm coming, and when I come to usher in this era, this time, this year, it's a time of grace I'm offering you. Because a day is coming. And he's not denying this. A day is coming when your life ends, or when Jesus comes back, when the day of vengeance and God's wrath is going to be seen across the whole world. But in this day, in my era, Jesus says, in my year, erase it. It's just to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And my friends, he's asking us to grasp that right here and right now. Because we live in a time of grace, and if we've pushed Jesus to the fringes, It's going to be a scary time when that day comes. And Jesus' sermon says this, when you live with me, you live in the Lord's favor. He would leave that crowd and he would walk away from that cliff, untouched, and he would continue ministry. And from that point on, he would have one and one thing in mind for the rest of his ministry. And that wasn't necessarily raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, which he did. That wasn't necessarily giving sight to the blind, which he could. But he set his face for Jerusalem, and he walked step and step 
of living a perfect life for you, all the way to Jerusalem where he willingly handed himself over to a mob that pushed him to another hill that he would not walk away from. And on that hill in Calvary, he gave his life for you. He didn't come down from the cross. He didn't walk through the crowd. He did that because the wrath of God was on him. For all the times that we searched after health, wealth, and success from God, God says, no, I I forgive it. You're forgiven. And it's taken care of forever on the cross. That's living in the Lord's favor, being a forgiven child of God forever for free, undeserved love. And that is what God does not want you to miss out on, whether you're getting vertical in your career or whether you're just starting out, whether you're getting straight A's or you're trying not to fail, whether you're being a great spouse or whether you have just been a jerk this week. He wants to give you his grace and you live under his favor. So repent. That's the message. Repent and believe that your sins are forgiven because they are. And as a church, we together are going to keep each other in the Lord's favor. He entered in a time of favor for his people because he's given us grace. And he says, in my church, I'm alive today, I'm risen today, and I'm active in my spirit among God's people. It's a good thing, book of Hebrews says, to gather together regularly, to gather together so that we can point each other back to that promise, back to the word, right? Not just the power, not just the attaboy, and not just God is blessing your life. That's not what church is about. Church is about going back to that means of grace that God says, I've given you. I've, I've made you a baptized child of God. That's a promise, not just a big, powerful thing. That's a promise from God in his word that I'm with you in my body, in my, in my blood, here in the sacrament. I'm, I'm with you. I'm giving myself to you because I love you. That's the promise that we go into the world and we face it with. And the promise is here too. Where two or three gather together in my name, there I am with them. And so today, today is Connect Group Kickoff Sunday, and I want to give you this reminder to, be clo- to close. We pray for you to stay in the Word here in, in Sunday morning, and we pray that this, 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 this fervor that you have to stay close to God and His promises also extends to other people. It's, it's a private thing, and it's a personal thing, and spirituality and religion is a spiritual and personal thing, but it's something in the Christian faith that we share with one another, and so we believe that the best way we can keep you connected, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week, is through um, Bible study together. And so when we pray about this Connect Group semester and we think about getting together and encouraging one another, think of the, about the words of, uh, in Hebrews that says, let us not grow tired of meeting together, but let's do that all the more as we see the day. Remember that day of judgment? That day approaching. Because I don't want to lose you and you don't want to lose me. And we live in God's favor. And we're going to keep that favor in front of our eyes all the time. In closing, uh, there's about a one-minute video I'm about to show you. And this video I've interviewed, well, I've email interviewed your Connect Group leaders. And I've asked you this week to tell me, how does it look like that your Connect Group, that your small group, how does that group live in God's favor and how do you guys encourage each other in the year of the Lord, okay? We're going to close with this video and I pray that you think about and that you pray about, again, going back to the promises of God in private devotion and worship and in small groups. Jesus, your Savior, loves you. He had an, a, a shocking sermon, a shocking sermon that drove people to, to, to push him to the edge of life. And for those same people, he gave his life for.
and he gave his life for you.